0: Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. Father, hear our prayers. Help us make the most of our time together today, Lord. Um, Thank you for the food that we're going to share together, uh, the good fellowship, But Lord, more important would be to be fed from your word and and certainly not to be fed by me. Uh, I don't know that I'm a very good chef, but Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be speaking through me. You used the donkey in the Old Testament. You can certainly use me and feed our souls. May this be like some daily heavenly bread, manna from heaven to nourish us, to give us more clarity in our minds Uh, But Lord, to give us more strength and spiritual stamina in our souls to fight against sin and to go on the offensive uh, in the world to love people well and to help them know and experience You more. Pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Okay, so this whole quarter we're talking about uh, the the title of the series. If you wanted a simple title, would just be Law and Covenant. And what we're really trying to look at is how is the moral law of God supposed to function. In the life of a Christian. And three weeks ago, now I guess when I was first here, we talked about the idea of covenant and the idea of being in relationship with God. We're going to focus more on law today. And if you looked at the word law in the Bible, whether you looked in Hebrew or Greek, uh, it essentially means the same thing it means today. It's a rule, it's a principle, it's a standard. But it's used, just like a lot of our words in English, It can be used in different ways at different times. But at least for today, when we talk about the law, we're going to be talking about the moral law of God. All right. So if I say the word law, that's what I mean today. So first point would just be this. What is the law? What is the moral law of God? And maybe a good shorthand definition would be it's just a revelation of the heart of God. It's the revelation of His character. Now, if we were going to have trivia time and somebody asked you, what's the shortest summary of the moral law of God in the Bible... What would you say? What's that? Okay, Ten Commandments. That's, that's one. Does anybody want to have a different answer? Okay, the greatest commandment. All right, so in the Old Testament, it would be the Ten Commandments, but then Jesus comes on the scene, and just to show that he's greater, he says, let me boil it down to just two for you. Uh, it's the greatest commandment, Matthew chapter 22. If you want to look in verse 37, this is where he says this, Matthew chapter 22, starting verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets. That was a Jewish way to talk about the entire Old Testament. And Jesus basically says, I know the Old Testament is long and maybe there's certainly a lot of people in our culture today haven't read the whole thing. Let me just sum it up for you. What it essentially says is love God with the totality of your being and love your neighbor in the same way with the same intensity, same energy that you love yourself. First John chapter 4, verse 8. You don't have to flip there, just listen. It's a very short verse. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So the shortest summary of God's character in the whole Bible would be first John four eight. God is love. John Stott said it this way, God is love in his inmost being. So God is love, and so what is really the law of God? It's just a reflection of who God is. Love me, love your neighbor, because he's a loving God. So there's a very real sense in the moral law of God. It's just an extension of who God is, okay? Uh, Think about even the Ten Commandments, that other great summary. Don't kill. Why not? Why can't I murder people? Because you're supposed to love life. You're supposed to love human beings, don't commit adultery. Well, why not? You're supposed to love your wife. You're supposed to love faithfulness. God's a faithful God, to us. It's all about love. When you dig into it, let's do do this together. Uh, everybody, flip over to Romans chapter thirteen for a second. Romans chapter thirteen. Romans chapter thirteen, and skip down to uh, verse eight. And this is Paul talking about the commandments. You know, there are some actually famous evangelical teachers today that uh, talk about, you know, we just need to leave the Old Testament behind. We only need to use the New Testament. And that sounds good at first. It's really stupid. And I'll tell you the main reason it's stupid, because that's not what the New Testament does. A large portion of the New Testament is taking the Old Testament and interpreting and applying it. So that's not how Paul and Peter and James and the other apostles that wrote the New Testament treated the Old Testament. So we should treat it the same way. And here's a classic example. Romans chapter 13, starting verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, I know some people, teachers, again, that would take that one verse and say, see, we don't need the Old Testament. We don't need the moral. law. You just, just love people. But that's not what Paul does. He explains it. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbors yourself, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then everybody flip over to Galatians chapter 5, which in some ways is just a shorter version of the book of Romans, but you get a very similar passage. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed while one another. So Paul says, yeah, sum it up, love one another. But now let me give you some practical instruction because sometimes we don't know exactly what it means to love somebody. And we need the Bible to tell us, unpack it. Practically speaking, what does it mean to love somebody? So that's what the law is. It's a reflection of God's loving heart. Now, where is the law? Where is the law? That's our second question. Everybody go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're trying to answer the question, where is the law? Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 26, very famous verse. We may have even looked at this three weeks ago, but Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. One of the places we find the law of God, it's on the heart of mankind. What, what does it mean to be in the image of God? I think three weeks ago, part of what we said is, it means you have a capacity for spiritual relationship, a spiritual connection with God. But part of it means, we're, we're, listen, the God the Father has no being. Like, it doesn't have a body like we do. So it doesn't mean that we look physically like God the Father, but it means we, have a, we were created with a similar character, okay? The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 4, section 2, says this. They, talking about Adam and Eve, had the law of God written on their hearts. Now listen, if some of y'all really get into this idea like me, I want to study more about what the Bible says about the law of God and the covenants and how they work together in Christian life, there's an old book called The Marrow of Modern Divinity, And it's really long and it's really dense and it's really good. But it's like 301 level. So get you a copy and take it really slow and and do it with a friend to hold yourself accountable to actually finishing it, okay? It's not easy, but it's really rich. But I'll just give you a quote and you can quote it to your friends and you can look smart because you're quoting the marrow, okay? Adam heard as much of the law in the garden as Israel did at Sinai, but only in fewer words and without thunder. You hear what he's saying there? Is at, at the Mount Sinai, when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, says, here's the law of God. The author of the marrow of modern divinity is saying, and I think he's arguing rightly, that Adam and Eve, they knew all that stuff. It was just placed on their heart because they were created in the image of God. They knew they were supposed to love people. They knew they were supposed to love one another, love God, be faithful, not murder. And I'll give you a couple examples to kind of prove it, okay? Um, think about uh, Genesis chapter 4. Right, you know the story. If you don't, flip over and read it later. But you got two brothers, and one of them murders the other brother. And do you remember what happens? If you want to just flip over, uh, Genesis chapter 4, let's pick up in verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So God doesn't accept Cain's offering, and Cain gets mad about it. Let's just read from there, okay? So Cain was very angry, and his face Phil. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and killed him Then the Lord said to Cain Where is Abel your brother? And he said I do not know Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood Is crying to me from the ground And now you were cursed from the ground Which has opened its mouth To receive your brother's blood From your hand Now Here's what's really interesting guys We're in chapter 4 of the whole Bible Go read the first three chapters There's never a place In the first three chapters Where God says Thou shalt not murder it was never commanded. Cain was just supposed to know it. It was written on his heart. Okay. Now, here's where this can get a little weird for us. Ever since the fall of the human race in Genesis chapter 3, are human beings still made in the image of God? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely right. Okay, flip over uh, to Genesis chapter 9. This is after the flood. Genesis chapter 9, this is the covenant that God makes with Abraham, I mean, excuse me, with Noah. Genesis chapter 9, look at verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So God still considers every human being to be made in his image. So here's the best way that I can understand it. Imagine that you had a full-length mirror in your home. Probably you don't, but maybe your wife does, okay? And if somebody threw a stone and they hit that mirror and you went to look at your reflection, can you still see your reflection? Yes, but it's going to be very jagged and maybe confused. It's going to be a broken image. It's going to be a distorted image. And that's what every human being living on planet Earth still has to this day. The image of God is implanted in their heart. They have some knowledge of the law of God, although it's very foggy, it's very confused, it's very distorted. Flip over to Romans and let me show you how this shows up a little bit in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and we'll look at verse 19. Romans chapter 1 verse 19 and probably what Paul is doing in this section of Romans is he is probably saying he's probably meditating on Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as he's writing Romans 1. So look at what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Human beings, and this, this is the passage you go to if somebody's like, well, what about the guy that grew up on an island? He's some kind of pagan Indian. He never meets a missionary. He never reads the Bible. He never hears about God. What this is saying is he knows enough. He knows enough truth. It's plain to him that there is a God and that he's supposed to live his life for God. Flip over to chapter 2. Flip over to chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles, this would be Paul's way of saying non-Christians, non-Jews, people that didn't grow up with the Old Testament, they grew up in pagan homes. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, mean they don't have Moses to read, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Do you see what he's saying there? All human beings have a conscience. Now, your conscience is not always pinpoint accurate. Your conscience has to be informed by the word of God to be perfectly accurate. But we all have this experience, do we not? Of sometimes you say something in a conversation, maybe you're on a business call and you kind of get on somebody and then later you're like, oh, maybe that was a little harsh. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. And you're like, well, no, that guy needed some tough love. You're going back and forth. Did I do the right thing or did I not do the right thing? And what Paul's saying is the biggest, craziest pagan on planet earth, they have the same thing going on in their mind. Maybe not the same level that a Christian does, but it's going on. My wife, my wife loves to, her favorite thing to do Sometimes it makes me worried about her Is, is these true crime podcasts And true crime TV shows You know they're, they're all over the place I'm like are you trying to kill me? Is that what you're trying to find out? But So she told me I was out of town last week And I got back she said I watched the craziest one I've ever seen yet It was about a guy that kidnapped a woman He held her for a while Assaulted her And then he let her go a few days later And I was like why did he let her go? You know, and is he, is she, why didn't he just kill her? I mean, that's what most of these people do. And she said, This guy, it was really interesting. He was dealing with his conscience the whole time. Break into somebody's house, beat people up, torture them, kidnap them, assault them, and then after that, say, I can't do this anymore. Let him go. The wickedest people on planet Earth are still made in the image of God, and they have the law of God, even in some distorted view on their heart. And C.S. Lewis, he has a great place where he says, if somebody ever says, no, I don't believe in any kind of moral standards of the law of God or anything like that, he says, just do something to offend them. And I think the example he used is like break in line in front of them. What are they going to say? That's not fair. Like, you do have standards, you know? When, when I kind of make that personal, maybe I share it with college students sometimes, I'm like, if somebody actually says that to you, just punch them in the face. And I don't really mean that. But it's like, just see how that would go. It's like all of a sudden they'd have a standard. Why'd you do that? That wasn't right. We all know the law of God. So where is the law of God? It's on the human heart, even if it's there in a broken way. And then the third point is this. How is the law? How is the law? And what I'd say is the law is broken. The law is broken. That's the first kind of sub-point. We already know that from Genesis 3. Don't have to prove that. Okay, The law is broken. But let's just look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is an important doctrine in the Bible, guys. When Adam chose to sin against God, eat the forbidden fruit, rebel against God's clear law, that one prohibition, since then, every single human being that's ever been born on planet Earth, we are born dead in our sins. Okay? We are broken. The law has been broken in our lives. Why do we do acts of sin? Because we're sinful. It's not the other way around. It's not like, well, you're a sinful person because you do acts of sin. No, you were born sinful, and that's why you do acts of sin. We come into the world sinful. How is the law? It's broken, and then second, it's suppressed. So we're going to look at one last passage, I think, and then we'll be done. So flip back over to... Romans chapter one again. We're just going to spend a little bit more time here. Romans chapter one, okay. Romans chapter one, verse eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay. Underline that phrase if you underline in your Bible. If your Bible's too good to underline in it, throw it away and get another one that you can underline in. All right. We suppress the truth. That's what Adam and Eve did in the beginning. That's what we still do today. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. The further you go into sin, it warps your mind. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became... Fools! I mean, this makes me think about Ph.D. professors at Ivy League schools who deny there's no God. You're claiming to be wise? You're really a fool. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and the dishonor of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Do you see that phrase? It comes up three times. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. There's a descending order to sin. You persevere in sin... And God will just give you up to it. Let me just pause and say this for just one second, guys. Sometimes if you've got some sin in your life right now, and you've kind of been playing around with it, kind of toying with it, and you're like, you know what, I'm not suffering that bad of consequences. I know what happens in my mind when that happens to me. I think maybe God's not that mad. Maybe this one isn't that big of a sin. Maybe I can keep playing with it. You know what I ought to be thinking? You know what you ought to be thinking if you're thinking that way is maybe God's giving me up to my sin. That's a terrifying thing, that part of the punishment is he can say, go ahead, have your fill. It's not gonna end well. His kindness, Romans 2, 4 says, is supposed to lead us to repentance. Keep going here, we're almost done. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve desire, die, they do, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Verse 32 is really crucial for what we're talking about, guys. The most wicked, crazy, sinful person on planet Earth, verse 32 applies to them and it says, deep down, they know there's a God. Right? Atheists may say they don't believe in God, but God doesn't believe in atheists. Deep down, everybody knows there's a God. They know there's a God. They know there's a law that they're supposed to be obeying, but they're not. And number three, they know judgment is coming. A fair, just judgment's coming. Now, How do we apply this passage, guys? I don't know if you know this, but the list that Paul has there from verse 29 through 31, it seems all kind of jumbled up, doesn't it? It's like he puts really big, bad, dirty, scandalous sins like murder right next to like smaller sins like gossip, slander, disobey parents. And listen, it's funny. You can read 20 different commentators and try to find, is there a rhyme or reason why? And what I think the best commentator would say is, This was intentional. And I think Paul knew what he was doing. Here's my best understanding, guys. Rome was a big city. The church at Rome was a big, prominent church already. And Paul knew when he was writing this letter to him. and he's talking about how homosexuality is sin and things like that, he knew that they were probably gonna be reading that letter in church saying, amen, amen. You get those crazy Romans. You get those bunch of liberal Greeks out there living so crazy. And then he throws in a few things like, Slander, gossip, and people are like, whoa, wait a second. I might deal with that some. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Guys, you want to know one of the main ways that I think nice, conservative, evangelical Protestants like us suppress the truth? It's the comparison game. Look out there at the wicked world and all the crazy, big, bad sins they're doing. My sins aren't even worth talking about anymore. But if I'm living in a loving relationship with my heavenly father, they are. And I need to take, listen, Rosera Butterfield, y'all may have heard of her. Um, she was a homosexual professor, I think, at Syracuse. She's come to Christ. But she has a phrase that I love. She says, hate our sin and love the sinner. And listen, she's no liberal saying, let's just be, you know, not even pay attention to people's sins. She's, she's great about calling out everybody's sin in the culture. But the point is, We need to make a bigger deal about hating our own sin rather than hating everybody else's sin. And the danger, I know at least for me sometimes, is it can be really easy to hate everybody else's sin out there and talk about how big and bad and ugly it is and give myself a pass because mine is not that bad. And I'm not saying we should give everybody else a pass. I'm just saying we should start with our own heart and make sure that we're not suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Whatever it is, gluttony, drunkenness, Take that to the Lord. Wrestle with it. Be serious about repentance. Right, even if you've been a Christian for 50 years, if you're still on planet Earth, we're not perfected. Lord, what are you still trying to do in me? Even if it's I'm doing okay, I'm doing better than I used to be, I still want to grow. Because, guys, here's what I've learned. If you're living in that dynamic on a day-to-day basis with Jesus, I got fresh stuff to repent of, fresh stuff to confess. It might be small, If I'm sitting at Eric Riebel's table and he's so holy and I confess my sin, he may say, that's not even worth confessing. That's not a big... But if if it's between me and the Lord, I need to confess. I need to repent. And if I'm doing that and I'm experiencing the grace of Christ in a fresh way, when I go out and maybe you're on a plane and you sit next to some person and they are dealing with some big, bad, ugly, scandalous sin, I can come to them more as speaking the truth in love and not just as an arrogant, judgmental, dogmatic zealot trying to win the culture wars. Because I realize we're on the same continuum. I may be several steps ahead of you, but I'm still desperately in need of the grace of Christ. And he ain't given up on me yet. So you may be in some big, bad, ugly sins, but you still need the grace of Christ. And I can tell you about it, and I can tell you about it with joy because I'm still living under the banner that God made him who knew no sin, he never broke the law, to be a lawbreaker on the cross. On the cross, God treated Jesus like the worst lawbreaker of all time in my place, in my stead, so I can get treated like a perfect, sinless, righteous son of God. Live in that experientially and then go preach and share it to anybody and everybody you can get to listen to. you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would love your moral law more and not in some kind of legalistic, arrogant, condescending, comparison game way. I pray we would love it as a way to to know you more, love you more, express our love for you more, and to help us love other people better. Conform us to the image of Christ. Conform us to your moral law. Make us better lovers of you, Father, and better lovers of one another and everybody we come into contact with. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.